This is Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Dr. Smith, thank you for being with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. How does it feel? I mean, you've you've just finished, right, with Western, with the doctor? Yes, yes. yes. Yep, so I'm teaching there still, so I'll be mm. going for another round with the next cohort of folks at the Eugene Peterson Center, but yeah, my own demon is now finished, and you actually were one of the first people who ever emailed me, Dr. Smith, and I almost sent it to my husband because that's been his name for a long time. Oh, no, absolutely. And it was, it was uh, kind of nice to be like, oh, no, that's me, so... Yeah, yeah uh, tell, tell us tell us what you wrote about just a bit, and we'll come back to it later in the conversation. But what's, yeah. the, what's the title? And it's a book, yes. right? It's going to be. It's going to be a book with Nav Press in October, and it's called "Confessions of an Amateur Saint: The Christian Leader's Journey from Self-Reliance to Dependence on God." And it's really just um, based on my own journaling, confessing my own desire to. Um, feel good <laughs> you know just the confessions that are like i just want to i just want to feel strong i just want to know outcomes i just want to see miracles i just want to feel successful i just want people to like me which i think anybody in christian leadership is feeling all of those all the time oh, and um confessing the, the decisions that i have to make on a moment by moment basis i think that most of the big really dumb immoral and burnout kinds of decisions that Christian leaders make often come from those, just those private moments. Mm. Um, so we talk about the headlines, but we don't often focus on where did it begin? And so, um, I was just personally journaling those confessions and then, and a kind of confession as well that was just choosing to believe God is powerful again in a secular context, choosing to trust there is something transcendent. And, um, after writing about 60 of those, I realized, I think, I think this is a project and then it became also a book. So, um, my prayer is that it blesses others that people find a friend in their in their own wrestling and confessing. And, and I have no doubt they will. I mean, you're you are. This is not at all flattery. You're a terrific writer. Uh, you have to know that about yourself. In fact, what I think I'd like to do is start with a passage, a terrific passage from a previous book, mm-hmm. Vulnerable Pastor. So I, I'm going to read just just a few of your own words back at you, and let's let's see how they strike you now. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm going to anything like I am. <laughs> you haven't read them in a while. Yeah. So this is from the vulnerable pastor. Our work as pastors is impossible. This is a fact many of us don't learn until we're well into it. In the beginning, we see some intelligence, some charm or talent in ourselves that makes us think we're up for the challenge of ministry, but inevitably we find it's not enough. We always will if we're doing this work right. For we have been given an impossible task as imperfect beings representing a perfect God. Eventually, we find that we have been called to something far beyond us. At some point, we will be faced with a sadness too great for our hearts to carry, a question too heavy for our minds, a responsibility that crushes us. When we get there, what will we do? Walk away from a cruel God who would hand us an impossibility? Internalize it as our own failing? Blame everyone around us? Maybe there's another way. Maybe God gave us an impossible task for a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. And that, those are the opening lines, right, as you know, of your introduction. And I think the title of that inter- introduction is God is an Odd Leader, which is another. <laughs> yeah, that he would I choose mean, to partner with us. <laughs> yeah. So that's almost 10 years ago. I mean, that's. Mm, yeah. How do, the, how do those words strike you now on the side of everything? Yeah, I don't think I even knew the depths of what I was saying at the time. <laughs> like, I agree, I agree with them even more than I did then. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I was just at the time, so I had been associate pastor and for about seven years, and I'd been co-leading with the senior pastor for about 18 months, and he was stepping down, and when I wrote that book, I... I was just stepping into the lead, the senior role by myself. It was such a gift that God gave me to kind of be apprenticed in it in that way. But it was by someone who was one of the most supportive people I have in my life. But by the same, but at the same time, just as nothing like me. So I was very much aware that this extroverted guy who's sciencey and mathy and then (laughs) there's this female introverted pastor from a different country is stepping into that role. So not only feeling that in the congregation, but feeling that in my context as well, because 
I was at the time the only female lead pastor in among a community of about 6,000 congregations. And my husband was teaching for the seminary associated with that denomination as well. And a seminary that had not allowed women into the preaching classes. And I knew his job might be on the line too. So, um, Mm. I'm kind of proud of myself that I did it anyway. Yeah. Um, well, you're so, being yeah, wow. Yeah, so it was, yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges of vulnerability is you can't practice it ahead of time. Like you're learning it on the job yes. and you make, and you mess it up sometimes, you know. So I definitely feel that and I think the the years since then have just taught me more and more depths of what you just read. Mm. You you do make You do make the point in the book that you didn't want to write a book about being a vulnerable pastor simply for women, but that you were writing as a woman, right? And that your experience was, again, as the only senior or lead pastor, female lead pastor in your denomination. So I I guess I have a two-part question. First of all, like how does that still hold true for you? I mean, how, because I've been in settings with you and I've, of course, heard you in settings. It's clearly, it's clear to me, right, that you're, your story and your authority work well beyond any kind of gender boundaries, but I don't want to reduce the uniqueness of that experience for you. Mm. And I, I think it's hard, at least on my side of the conversation, it's hard to do justice to that, right? Because I don't want to, to bracket it as if, you know, that somehow makes what you're doing niche because I don't Mm -hmm. think that that I don't think it is. I mean, I think what you're doing is deeply human and that's part of Mm -hmm. the reason it has the resonance it has, but I don't want to also paint over the peculiarities of it. So how, how do you, I appreciate that. This, thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's funny because I remember when my congregation was discerning, do we want a female lead pastor as I was being considered for that role? And I knew they were thinking about me when they were thinking female lead pastor, there was a Q and a kind of time. And one person asked me, have you always wanted to be a female pastor? <laughs> I was like, well, the female part was kind of not an option. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just is a funny question. It is a funny question. It's the so kind I'm of not, thing. yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to be niche, like you say. Yes. Um, but any of us can only ever speak from our own experience, and um, I've gone, I've had kind of every situation where I grew up in a church in Australia here where it. it the gender roles issue wasn't even an issue because we kind of didn't have the luxury. It was like, you want to help? Great. You know? Yes. Yes. And we hadn't even thought about it. So I didn't even think about asking when I was going to the States to go to seminary, asking if that seminary invited women into leadership roles, which it didn't. And I didn't discover that until I was there. And, you know, that was incredibly painful to be studying. And then the church I led was associated with that same group. Um, to be studying and leading in a, in a context that was not, was actively antagonistic towards women in leadership. Yeah. And so I'm taking seminary classes about that. I took a feminism class there that was, um, in a series of classes that was cults, the occult, new age and feminism. So, <laughs> oh and I got an A. I got an A in that class. Anyway, so <laughs> then, then I went from, outwardly, you know, like actively antagonistic towards that. Good people, but, you know, mm-hmm. doing what they think, how they understand the Bible. So I couldn't hate them for that. And I was there too. Like I had to wrestle through that for about seven years. And then stepping into leadership in a church that was incredibly supportive of me as a person and actively embracing women in leadership and at the same time had never had a female lead pastor before. And and. You know, so I'm having to navigate this myself and learn. It's not the same as being mum. It's not the same as being a CEO. But what is it? I haven't seen myself. I haven't seen this. And I'm also trying to teach other people, mm-hmm. especially, you know, people who are leading alongside of me. Okay, this is what I mean when I say this. And this is how I make decisions while I'm even figuring that out for myself. So that in some ways was was more difficult than the, the place where it's more obviously antagonistic. And now I'm finding myself in a denomination, the Uniting Church in Australia, which has been ordaining women for a long time. And I think I'm the third female pastor of this particular congregation. So, um, it's not, it's not even an issue at all in a different way. So, um, yeah, I find myself in all those places, but I do, I do think that most of the healing that I've found in my own life has come through my wrestling with 
what on earth does this mean? Why is God calling me? What is he asking me to do? How do I do that in a place where the church is not necessarily affirming that? Um, so ironically, the challenge of even figuring out what it means for me to pursue God's call has shaped me for God's call. And, yeah. mm. and the conflict, the reconciliation that I have longed for with the men in my life, many of the most supportive people in my life have been men, but also the people who have caused the most pain have also been men. And the reconciliation that, that I've longed for and fought for with those individuals and with men in general has taught me my need for the gospel like nothing else ever has mm. before. Mm. So there's goodness in all of that. Would you say, I, I think I know what you would say about this, but would you say that that's true for all of us, that the way in which our calling takes shape in a community is inseparable from our preparation to do that calling well? Yeah, I, I have to assume it has to be. And and from the ways that we've found healing and hope in our own wrestling and following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Have you known, how, how long have you known that you were called to this work? Do you Do you have a sense of, when it began? Yeah. It's funny. Don't tell anybody this, but I would do this for free. <laughs> Not the hard yeah. stuff. I'd probably walk away for that. But, um, <laughs> but the like, the praying with people, the listening for God with people, the studying scripture together. Like, I've always wanted to do that. And I, I think this is one of the things that women sometimes bring is that there was never a place in a career counselor's office where somebody said, have you ever considered ministry? Mm-hmm. Like I, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen for men, but I start. I went to Bible college cause I just wanted to study the Bible and I had no idea that it would become a, a paid role in any way. Yeah. Um, and so anybody, I think whether it's male or female, anybody who's pursuing it, because for me, it's like to answer your question. When did I know I've just, always wanted more of God. I've always, I've always found, and I'm thankful that my church upbringing and my family was a fairly safe, stable Christian context where I, I just wanted that. And so when I was 11 and I gave my life to following Jesus, I knew that that somehow had to do with also like serving him in some way. And so the woman who baptized me, she was a chaplain for my women's girls group she was a, she had been a missionary. And so I thought, well, maybe that's what I'm going to be. Like there was just a sense, even at 11 mm. that, that, that there was a giving your whole life to God. And, um, but it wasn't until, oh, I did the, I did the Bible college degree. I loved it. I got the Greek award, you know, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And then for 10 years, no, 14 years, I, I, the first, Four years out of Bible college, I worked to put my husband through his PhD in in an administrative role. I was basically a receptionist, frustrated the whole time because I was like, but I've got all these things I want to be doing in the church and in the world. And then, so four years of that, and then 10 years home with my kids full time, which is ministry of its own, which I absolutely love. And I miss those days. Although back then I know I was frustrated as well because I didn't have an outlet for all the things that were happening in me. So then I was writing books, my first two books, which are no longer in print. Um, uh, both I wrote when kids were in preschool or taking naps because I just had something in me that yeah. needed to come out. And it wasn't about like I need to get a platform or I need to, you know, position my my CV well so that I can get a church role one day or any of that. Um, it was just, I can't keep this in, you know? So it wasn't until my youngest went to preschool that, um, or kindergarten that I started part-time as an associate pastor in the church that we happened to be attending, which then turned into after seven or so years turned into a full-time lead pastor role. Hmm. So yeah, it's been a bit of a journey and I haven't really, I never would have said I want to be a preacher. Yeah. 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 But but you know, you say yes to God one step at a time, and you find yourself in all kinds of places you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, well, you are a wonderful preacher as well as writer. So let's talk about that a bit. Like how how have you related to preaching? Has that changed mm. over the years for you? Mm, probably. Yeah. How, how well, would you? I wasn't allowed to take preaching classes, so I took public speaking class, <laughs> and. Um, it has been a wrestling match to 
to find my own voice. Mm. Um, almost literally, like I remember the first couple of weeks that I was preaching as a senior leader, um, my voice, my throat would feel really sore afterwards. And I wondered what was going on because I'd done plenty of public speaking before and I realized I was unconsciously lowering my voice mm. so that mm. people would take me more seriously because I have a kind of a soft voice. And I had seen women who were powerful preachers who had that, you know, a different kind of gifting than I have who might be more apostolic in their gifting, more even evangelistic in their gifting and just more extroverted, more yeah. dynamic. You know, I'm a, I'm a very emotional introverted artist who also has, is a woman with a soft voice. And, um, I'd never seen a woman like me preach. And so I had to rethink what preaching even could be for me and have found have found a way to let it flow from who I really am. But there's been some serious spiritual warfare around that and just shame around um, anything that is tender and personal and vulnerable and emotional. And especially maybe in the context that I've been in, in academic contexts, um, I've just felt like, oh, nobody's going to take this seriously because I'm not giving three points and Mm -hmm. a poem or whatever the formula is. And it's much Mm -hmm. more personal than, you know, it's very scriptural. It's basically like, here is the scripture. Here is how I have sunk into it and let it do its work on me. And here's what I'm finding from that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I have found that that resonates with people, but there are, there have been places where I have, I, I have had people interrupt me in the middle of workshops, not sermons, but, but workshops. A man stood up five different times in the middle of one particular workshop and said, I just hear you talking about yourself. I came here to talk about the Bible or to hear about the Bible. I just hear you talking about yourself. And he made such a ruckus that security eventually had to come in and take him out. You know, so, I mean, not, they took him out of the room. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't take him out. <laughs> right. well, now that would have been a thing. appropriate if they had done so. Yeah. But that was like playing on my own fears and it's hard enough to, to share, I genuinely believe that there are forces of darkness specifically yep. assigned to keeping human beings quiet. Mm. You know, any single time that anybody wants to speak, give a testimony or, or create something, we, we are all told like, keep to yourself. You've got nothing to offer. Who are you to share that? Mm-hmm. And I think it's even, there were, there was additional layers of that when it came to speaking emotionally in an academic context. I mean, I'm all, I also love to read. It wasn't only emotion, but sure. adding emotion to, to thoughtfulness, mm-hmm. um, speaking as a woman in a predominantly male context. And that spot of the pulpit, I didn't realize until we were having to meet outside, we would meet in a park for COVID. I didn't want to go back in the building because I didn't realize the weight of just the, the social, mm-hmm. cultural dynamic of, I'm standing on a Sunday morning in this place at the big, at the front of a church mm-hmm. in a building. I love that building and I love those people, but I didn't realize until I was preaching in a park and the breeze is moving my skirt and there's birds overhead. Like I didn't realize until that I was preaching there how much I had felt this weight of certain expectations, kind of ghosts looking over my shoulders, you know. So it's been, it's been an interesting kind of situation but I think it's funny because sometimes I do workshops on preaching or something and I feel like I have to tell people I've actually never taken a class on preaching and my I'll tell you this and then I'll finish answering this is this is a long answer to your question I know but it's kind of funny my very first Sunday sermon was when I was associate pastor at that church in Cincinnati and the senior pastor was away he was planning to be back in time to preach on Sunday morning but at 10 p.m on Saturday night I got a call from him saying I'm snowed in uh, you think you can preach in the morning? <laughs> and um, it was a sermon on the passage for that week was the loaves and the fishes. So I remember my first ever sermon, like I'd never even practiced in a preaching class. My first ever sermon was me standing with open hands and telling the story of the loaves and the fishes and saying, I have nothing. Like I actually can't do what you're seeing me do. If you are hearing me preach a sermon, count it as a miracle because <laughs> I can't do this. Yes. You know, that's a good thing to remember, but I was terrified. Mm. Man, I have so many questions swirling. Let me ask you this one. You you talked about the spiritual warfare around preaching and, and teaching and I'm sure pastoral leadership too and pastoral care. 
What are some of the ways, some of the victories you won in that warfare? And do you know how those victories came? I, I, I have to, mm, I'm certain mm-hmm. there's going to be lots of people hearing this conversation who are in the middle of those yeah. conflicts. Do you so mean as a preacher or just in general? Well, I mean, as a preacher in particular first. Yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. the whole of our lives in some ways <laughs> are warfare, but I mean specifically related to this yeah. for those who are listening oh, yeah. in that fight. Yes, there are there are particular um, powers, I think, who are assigned to keep us from proclaiming good news. Mm-hmm. And I warn, whenever I have somebody sharing a testimony from within the congregation, I tell them, like, I take this really seriously. I'm going to be praying for you this week because there are going to be ways that you're going to be, I don't know what your particular weakness is. And the scripts, thankfully, I think powers of darkness are not very creative. I don't think they are creative at all. Yeah. They've got these really two-dimensional scripts, but they somehow work for us. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I just think that it's it's our creativity used against us, right? So the, the two-dimensionality mm. of those scripts, when they yeah. play through our imagination, they seem yes. you know, they're just puppets. That's a really good way to put it. Yes, but puppets yeah. in the darkness with the right kind of lighting and the right kind of mm. mood that we're creating become yeah. monsters. That's really good. I like that. Yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. Using our own creativity against us. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's not very many scripts. It's like, who are you to say this? People are not going to uh, appreciate you or like you. You're going to feel foolish. You're going to be disappointed. God's not going to show up. Like, um, all of those things assail us. And, um, I think in the last couple of years, I've just, it's easy to feel beaten down by that. And I've had many situations in my life where I'm the underdog and I just kind of fill that role too easily and quickly. And I feel sorry for myself. And instead to acknowledge, like, I am a representative of the risen Christ in this place. Not the only one, Mm -hmm. but to speak, to, to speak in, um, in those, words that claim claim this place in Jesus name <clears throat> and um so every morning i walk around the church building and i i sing the ren collective song build your kingdom here let the darkness fear show your mighty hand heal our streets and land mm. and there's a way that like i'm learning to do it with not my authority but with the authority that i have to trust god christ has won for us and i'm i'm seeing that make a difference in myself. And I think for me, one of the biggest ones is, um, especially with preaching, just this performance anxiety of like, this week is going to be the week that I don't have anything to say, (laughs) that I forget what I was trying to say, that I just totally blank out or that I don't even come up with anything. Like I'll get so busy, I'll get so overwhelmed that I won't have anything to offer. And what I do offer is just going to be dumb. And, um, it's just turning me on myself. It's really, it seems very humble, but it's actually a lot of ego in there, you know? Mm, And so this seems really simplistic, but the thing that I find really helpful is to pray for the people instead of to pray. Like I do not pray for my sermon. I ask other people to pray for my sermon, Mm -hmm, but to pray for the people who are coming. And then I have a pastoral heart towards them instead of a performance anxiety about them as an audience. Yes. And I pray that whatever I'm finding in this passage might, they might find in their own way, in a way that connects to them. Mm-hmm. And you probably know this, you know, it's not every week that, that you have somebody say to you, Oh, that sermon changed my life. But the few times that that has happened, and then the person has told me what, what it was that I said, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. <laughs> so what a beautiful grace, you know, that, mm-hmm. that even the things that really do hit home, we don't even remember saying so. Yeah, it's no, it's real. It is. I, I, I want to think too with you about the space. I mean, I I had a, a teacher who would often remind us that liturgical space mm. always wins. That the mm. space you're in is always louder than whatever you're saying or doing there. Hmm. And it, it's an idea that stayed with me for sure. And I, I think 
what you're raising here, it, it makes me want to ask this question. Like, in, if we find ourselves in spaces are in some ways either hostile or at least we're not at home in them, how mm-hmm. might we practice like re-sanctifying those spaces? Right? Because I, mm-hmm. I do think they, you've put your finger on something. Those aren't, those spaces are reflective of codes and patterns of thinking and feeling patterns of praying that have put people in their places quite literally, right? As, especially women and especially people of color in the U S at least this is the story. Mm-hmm. And that those spaces carry, not just carry the memory in some poetic sense, but quite literally are yeah. The, yeah. the lines are drawn. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking about the, yeah, I mean, I could give lots of examples. I think the point is clear. Like what would it might be, what, what, what might it look like for us if we feel that pressure? And I, I think mm-hmm. all of us must feel it at some level. Yeah. How do we fight back against it? How do we re-sanctify those spaces? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because <clears throat> there has been a temptation as a woman to fight for my right. Mm. And there's this cruel reality where people are watching you really carefully to see if you have a good attitude or not. You know, as a woman, you have lots of reasons not to have a good attitude. Mm. And um, most, many of the women I know who are in Christian leadership have dozens of stories of inappropriate behavior and words and mistreatment. And even if there's a disagreement about women's roles, do it in a way that's Christ-like, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's where, that's where I've seen strongholds are speaking to me, not human beings. Yes, yes, yes. That there was a moment, it might have actually been the time when I was, that man kept interrupting me. And I was like, I've never met this man before, but I know I've been, this person has spoken to me before. <laughs> this yeah, force has spoken force. to me before. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so that was part of my healing in, in being able to realize these, Brothers in Christ are not my enemies. They've fallen prey to some kind of stronghold, which makes them for some reason afraid of women. And that's not to say that it's an evil thing or a demonic thing to believe certain scriptures say women shouldn't preach. Like I, I have some wonderful, faithful Christian people who believe that, but they've approached me about it in a Christ-like way. They're not doing it out of, um, they're not doing it out of, uh, whatever stronghold I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But there, there is a stronghold that wants men and women to be, you know, any beautiful thing can be abused. The beauty yes. of, of the unity that is possible between men and women and the partnership we can have as brothers and sisters in Christ has such power that I think the enemy has unique, um, forces d- devoted to dividing us. And so I think that was an interesting moment in that time where I actually was just feeling really oppressed by the situation and it was bringing up a lot of painful baggage for me of many times I'd been kind of abused like that not as publicly though and um and to suddenly think like this is not about this particular man this is about warfare Mm -hmm. that is coming against me and it feels like the same dozens of other situations that I've experienced and that many women have experienced and, and I think I, I've watched this with African Americans in the States. Like, I don't know if they will ever truly have the things that they should have. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if the culture will ever really understand, um, what they're longing for and make a way to make that possible for them. Mm-hmm. But many of my African American friends find a way to praise God anyway. Yes. You know? Yes. And I think that's a really apocalyptic posture it of, is. of that we see in, in all of the stories in revelation of the lamb standing as if slain, you know, the, the, um, the witnesses that are crushed and yet still proclaiming, you know, like this crazy way in which we are overcome and yet we were over, we are overcomers. And so I think that, um, yeah, most most of the ways God has called me to dance, literally, which makes me really uncomfortable, and it's brought up all kinds of body baggage and mm. gender baggage. But um, and it's usually at home in my pajamas by myself. <laughs> um, but the joy yeah. that comes when I'm dancing is not related to my actual circumstances. It usually the dancing begins 
from my frustration and pain and I just need to release something. Mm. And mm. it turns after several songs worth of dance, stomping around the house, it turns yeah. into worship. Yeah. And it makes no sense. It's not dancing because everything's great. Oh. It's dancing because I'm longing for something and I'm choosing to keep longing for it and it's painful to keep longing for it. But somebody, I think we're called to long for things that we can't yet see so that we can invite others to long with us and we'll start to see it, you know? So. Yeah, that, that, that dancing for me, I mean, as a cradle Pentecostal, like it, of course I didn't <laughs> have language for that as a kid, but I, as I've grown and looked back on what it meant I think there's a, there's a kind of ancient, and I mean that, a kind of ancient wisdom that came to us through, primarily through the bodies of people we enslaved, uh, yeah. people who were enslaved, and who danced anyway, right? Yeah. Danced in, in, it makes in no sense. Circumstances. And that, yeah. that dance, it does show to be that there, mm-hmm. there is a kind of irrefutable power to hope and to, to the hope because it is, it's God's work, right? And so we're right. we're stirring that up. And I mean, yeah. I'm I'm the last one to be sentimental or naive about what happens when Pentecostal spirituality becomes self obsessed and goes wrong. But there's something really wise about that practice, and I think yeah. it's yeah. it's not a surprise for me to hear to hear you talk about the ways in which you're renewing because I think that's Martin Martin Shaw talks about. The difference between skin memory, flesh memory, and bone memory. Are you familiar with this? You know no. this? Apparently, if I understand him rightly, this is something that he learned from Aboriginal people. Mm. Yes. But I, he's the one I've heard discuss it. So he says that skin memory is like what we might just call facts. Like it's things mm-hmm. you can, I remember what year I graduated high school and I remember, yeah. you know, the, the color of the first car I owned or whatever. Like these are, just kind of meaningless or relatively meaningless facts. And then flesh memory is memory of things, songs, people, events that moved me. Like they marked mm. me. Right? Mm. But then bone memory is memory that extends far beyond my personal experience. It's something right. that, that we share as a people, that we share as human beings. Mm. And he argues, I think, I think, argue is probably not the right word. He testifies to the ways in which stories and songs and dance ritual at its best kind of summons bone memory. What's going on in dancing, mm. right? Like we're remembering. I love that. Something that's far beyond our, our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having an image of maybe my ancestors danced more than my very kind of stiff upper lip British kind of context. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. and there's a way in which I, I'm I'm really persuaded by the idea that you know our ancestors, I mean, long before we could write, maybe even before we could speak, knew how to dance and sing. You know that there's yeah. there's a yeah. way in which singing and dancing are older. They're certainly older yes. than essays <laughs> yes. and textbooks, and yes. we we need to. We need to return to that. And this is, you know, that. Pentecostal charismatic spirituality at its truest, perhaps, is bringing us back in touch with that. Right? Like, yeah, and I love, I love the way that we're seeing, you know, you're an example of this, the traditions and liturgies coming together with the movement of the spirit and the Pentecostal traditions. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful thing to see those things. And I, I'm experiencing both of those things and watching so many of my friends finding finding ways to bring those things together. It's a beautiful dynamic. I, mm. I'm excited to see where it's going to lead us. Yeah, thank God for it. You you made this point in, in the Vulnerable Pastor book about a kind of hesychist spirituality, you know, where you learn silence, you learn tears. And I, I, Rowan Williams, and you, you brush up against this point, but I, I'd love to hear you talk about it kind of explicitly mm-hmm. Rowan Williams talks about, and this is in being human, the, his mm. little book being human, that we need silence, but we need not to be silenced, but it's, mm. it's crucial that our silence be something we're offering, not something that's forced on us. Mm, interesting. So I'd love for you to talk about that specifically again, without, 
without narrowing it to that, but how mm-hmm. you learned as someone who's been silenced or, you mm-hmm. know, the example we've been discussing today about literally while you've been given the floor to speak, you've been invited to teach, you have someone trying to silence you, right? And that, mm-hmm. that's what you've heard before. Yeah, like, yeah. What does it look like to practice silence as gift, as grace, especially mm-hmm. when you are often being encouraged to be silent, right? By voices that are not God's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the story that you're referring to comes from when I was in that Bible college and in many classes, um, citing the first Timothy 2 passage. And um, my husband was kind of wrestling with me about what does this even mean for Mandy specifically. And um, he was really excited when he came home from, he was doing a Greek word study and he chose the word Heisukia in that passage, which is, you know, she must be quiet. Must be quiet, yeah. Yeah, and um, he was so excited because he said, you know, it doesn't, in other places, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean not speak. And in fact, earlier in that same chapter, it says, you know, pray for those who are in authority over us that we may live a quiet life. That doesn't mean never speak. It's kind of, right. it's, a, it's a peaceful life. Mm-hmm. And he was so excited that it was about having inner peace, but, and I love that. <laughs> but at the same time, in some ways it made me more frustrated because I didn't have inner peace. And it was because of that stinking Bible passage <laughs> that I didn't have inner peace. <laughs> so I kind of, I don't think I put it into these words at the time, but I think what I ended up then doing from that place for like five or six or seven years was choosing to say, okay, I'm not feeling peace. And I'm just talking, I'm not just talking about like my personal peace. I'm talking about the shalom. I'm not feeling harmony between what is going on in me and what is going on in scripture and what is going on in the church. They all seem to be different gods. And I could watch friends of mine walking away from their calling entirely or walking away from their faith entirely because that was painful to feel like the Bible and the church and your own spirit was seeing different gods. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of myself that, that at a early, early twenties, I chose to say, well, what if God, what if God is one? What if there is unity in God? And I just can't see how all these pieces come together yet. Maybe, maybe there's something God needs to do in me. And again, I don't think I could have put it in that language, but I, but I sat in this uncomfortable space for at least five years asking God, like, what, what are you, if you are calling me to something, there must be a way for me to do this and for me to understand what it is you're asking me to do. And that shaping of me, of sitting in those unresolved things, and it wasn't just like, I don't know the answers to this. It was like, I don't know what my life is, how this is, this is very personal, <laughs> you know, it's going to affect yeah. me and how I use my days and my time. Um, I see now how that, that choice to sit in painful places where God does not seem to be one has shaped me for leading a church because there's many times when we feel called, you know, we feel God calling us to do something, but at the same time we don't see God providing for us to do it. Yes. Or, you know, so many different situations like that. And I have to go back to that practice of saying, well, God is one. And if he doesn't provide, maybe he wasn't calling us to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to force it yeah. if he doesn't provide for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he does, if he is calling us to do it, what does it look like for us to live as if he's going to provide and to be a part of that? Maybe he's asking us to do something to allow him to provide. I don't know, but, um, but that's interesting when you ask the question about being silenced because <clears throat> a part of it also has has required me to process what authority is when we do speak. Why are we speaking and what are we speaking and in his, whose, whose name are we speaking? As someone who has been silenced, I don't think I've put it that way before, but I guess that's been true. Um, when I then was feeling called to speak and step up and write books and become a preacher, there's so much good conversation at the moment in the church about abusive authority and people Mm -hmm. who are seeking the spotlight that there was so much pushback in my own spirit and from others saying oh no we don't do leadership anymore we don't do authority anymore don't seek the limelight don't try to have a platform yeah and 
that actually spoke to my fundamental temptation to just be quiet because I was yes. good at that. Yes. And I had to confess. Like it actually was like, oh, great, that gives me an out. I don't have to speak. You know, some mm-hmm. people are seeking the limelight yes. and they need to be thinking about why they're doing that. Some of us, and I think a lot of us are women and minorities, would yes. prefer not to have the limelight because it has, you know, not always been friendly. That's right. <laughs> and um, and so I've had to really process, like, there is something in me that it is disobedience for me to, to keep to myself. Mm. I'm not saying it to, to gain a hearing for my own sake, but, you know, Jesus had authority. People were astounded with his authority, and I believe it came from how much he emptied towards the Father mm. and how much he set aside his own rights and spoke from that place. And so I, it helped me to remember as a parent, I had embraced authority to speak into my children's lives, not because I'm better and bigger than them, but because I lost sleep for those kids. (laughs) You know, I read every book on parenting I could get my hands on. I I cried and I prayed and I gave my whole self more than I thought I was going to ever give to these kids. So I might not always be right in everything I say to them, but I have, I have a right to speak into their lives. Um, and I think that helped me in the way that I was feeling called to write and, and to speak in my ministry as well. Yeah. I think, I think you, you've put your finger on something. I, I said to, to our clergy recently that I think as, as damaging as toxic leadership is and as bad as it is to have kind of ego driven, you know, personality cults, the, the greatest damage that's done, like by far the greatest damage that's done is from those who aren't ever able to kind of step into their calling because we we're silencing them without realizing we are. Mm. And like what you're describing is, I mean, I think that's, if we can put it in these terms, I mean, I think evil is kind of always working in two ways. There's the demonic side that is threatening chaos and destruction that awakens all of our fears and causes us to panic. And then there's the satanic side, which is offering us easy solutions, supposedly to all that's frightening us. And it's that trick of, Oh, Mm -hmm. just take this way that ends up actually inhibiting or frustrating what God is trying to do in the world far more than the destruction and the chaos. Mm -hmm. It's, it's buying into these lies that silence the people who need not to be silenced. And I, I think there's, of course there are people and in our world, disproportionately male people who are, and disproportionately white people and disproportionately privileged people who are grasping for attention and pushing to the front and trying to be heard because of their own brokenness. And mm-hmm. that, that has to be confronted. Mm-hmm. But I think we're, we're living in a wisdom famine, not just because those voices are the loudest, but because in our attempts to respond to that, we're also silencing people who desperately need to be heard. And yeah, for our sakes. Front. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. They, they, we need to be especially proactive in that because um, there are voices that they're hearing that are saying, last time you spoke up, you got shot down or you haven't been equipped for this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's spiritual warfare for us to call them out and to equip them and to support them, even if they look very different from what we've seen before. And it's not just like, I think in the beginning I came to, to this from a, um, it's their right. It's my turn. It's my time, you know, mm-hmm. but I actually think at a time when so many folks are burning out and so many of us are questioning what Christian leadership even is and everything's kind of in upheaval and we've lost our hope for what Christian leadership could be. There's an entire cohort of leaders who are fresh, you yeah. know? And not all of them are women and minorities, but a lot of them are. Sure. And um, it reminds me of that scene in um, one of the Lord of the Rings books where a, a bunch of the friends are having a battle with the orcs and you think that, you know, it's all over for them. And then you forget Gandalf's gone off. I think he's gone off to get the elves or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where they all turn to the hilltop and the sun blazes in their eyes and blinds them. And then here comes Gandalf's with right. hair streaming, you know, and his, all these friends come to join the fray. And, and I kind of feel a little bit like God is providing for such a time as this, where there are some who are burned out and need to take a break. 
yeah. or who or whose imaginations have you know need refreshing of what leadership in the church even is and meanwhile there are some who are just longing for opportunities to share their gifts and many of them are equipped and ready and um i think it's it's a gift to the church yeah um and they they bring a different perspective you know maybe they've you know my first 10 years of ministry was raising children and i think there is definitely ministry skill that i learned from that space no doubt no doubt so let me ask you a two-part question as we start to wind down here. The first is, and this it's hard for me still to think of myself in these terms, but for for people in leadership roles like I like I've been entrusted with bishops and pastors and leaders who have responsibility for other leaders and um, for the care of the church, what advice would you give us? Like, what do we need to be praying about? Sensitive to. Like, how would you direct our attention right now? Hmm, interesting. For, for specifically for folks who are leading other leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Well, having just walked through three years with 20 students at the Eugene Peterson Center, they're all pastors and they've all been invested for three years in doing projects in their own contexts. It's been so beautiful that they just all did their presentation. So we spent a week together in January Um and we just listened to everybody's presentations and there was what I think we could call pastoral renewal happening, mm. but it all kind of, it all came from confronting the darkness in them, in their own selves, in their denominations, in, in their congregations. And, um, you know, it's, it's always the case that, well, death and resurrection just seems to be the story that we're in. Right. Yeah. And we, I often have this image that we, that we're kind of in this current furiously treading water at the top of a waterfall, just trying to hold it all together and make sure we don't go over the edge, you know, and I, and that's exhausting in itself. Mm -hmm. And so if I had the choice, I'd rather go through a, a couple of minutes of excruciating pain of just letting go and going over the edge in the hope that it might bring me to a new place. Mm than living a whole life of just desperation, you know. So I guess I would say walk with people in the places that they'd probably rather avoid to confront the places of pain, to kind of trust that there's something in our spirits that that is feeling that pain because something isn't right, either in our own selves or in our local congregations or in the church universal. Every single place of healing and hope that I've found and every single book or article that I've written has come from having to go into those places. And, and I mean, it's like the Psalms. Almost every Psalm that, that starts out with, where are you, God? Are you even listening to me? Comes out with praise. Because mm-hmm. the Psalmist has let themselves go over the waterfall. Let, and that's, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a scary place for leaders, especially in the American church where it's very much about hold it all together. Keep, keep on a strong face. So I think that we, we need safe places as leaders to have permission to, to go there. And it might mean we're not good at our jobs for a while. Or it might mean we have to step away from our jobs for a while, but to provide friendship and permission and support. And that's honestly why I wrote the vulnerable pastor and why I've written the, the next two books since then is just to say, here's what I'm learning in the crashing through the, through the torrents. And, the, and I, and like, I've come out, like I'm, I feel sometimes like I'm calling up to the people still furiously treading water at the top. And I'm like, it's great down here. It's going to be crazy for a while, (laughs) but, but like you'll survive it and you might even be freed by it. So, Mm -hmm. so then to second part of the question to those who feel like either if they're, if they're afraid to speak up, let's say, even if they're not actively silenced, there's a kind of passive force, you know, that kind of invisible field that's hard to break. What would you say to them about trusting the work of God inside them and the call in their life. Like yeah. how, how would you direct them? Yeah. I don't want to minimize in any way how scary it is. I mean, it's scary to just confront our own darkness and emotions, but then to do it knowing that other people are, are relying on us and that mm-hmm. people have kind of an idolatry around what they expect of pastors that we attempted to have for ourselves too. So um, I guess I would say find some friends who who aren't ashamed or afraid of your 
weakness of your normal hum, human limitation, whether that's a counselor or some books or, you know, if you can't find actual friends, find a safe place where you can figure this stuff out. And, um, and, and I've never seen someone go into that place in a healthy way without coming, coming into a, a freer place of trusting mm-hmm. that, that God has called human beings to this work. And, um, the passage from second Corinthians four always comes to mind for me. And it's beautiful because in, in the chapter beforehand, Paul is saying, you know, he's telling the story of Moses and he's talking about get it. Moses has those stone tablets, the very word of God written in God's handwriting on solid stone that you can hold. And his face glows from being in God's presence. And all of us would be like, well, that's pretty cool. We didn't get to go on the mountaintop like Moses. I wish we could. But Paul is actually saying stone tablets can break. That glory faded. He had to wear a veil to show, to hide the fact that the glory of God faded from his face. He says, unlike Moses, we have the very spirit of God written on our hearts, this unfading treasure that is carried in clay vessels. And I don't know if Paul is doing this or not, but he's talking about writing technologies from, from, um, cl- uh, stone tablets. And he, it, he said, he talks about written on human, written on hearts of flesh mm-hmm. and stored in clay vessels. So I don't know if he's doing this or not, but it reminds me of, you know, the way that the, they, they wrote manuscripts on, vellum made of animal flesh mm-hmm. rolled them up in a clay vessel like they found the dead sea scrolls and it lasted for a really long time yeah that's we just great, found those point, you yeah. know and so and so i think we're supposed to feel the weakness and ordinariness and limitation and fragility of being a clay vessel like let's not be surprised by that mm-hmm. <laughs> the bible tells us you're a clay vessel but but what does it mean for us to imagine the possibility that the unfading presence of the the glory of God is hidden in these clay vessels. We're supposed to feel the tension of that, of like when I walk anywhere, I am I am the presence of God in that place, but at the same time, I'm going to feel tired, I'm going to feel overwhelmed, I'm going to run out of ideas, I'm going to get old. Like yeah. somehow God wants to be expressed <laughs> in mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, because that, that, I guess that needs a light scent, right? That that weakness, that vulnerability, that limitation, yeah. that humanity. Yeah. Right. And the more that I like in some ways I feel weaker than I've ever felt, and in other ways I feel stronger than I've ever felt. Mm-hmm. And I think the strength comes from embracing embracing sounds like I'm more comfortable with it than I am. <laughs> Just getting used to the weakness. Yeah. yeah you're, you're, you know, I think you said to, at one point before we started recording that you're becoming a bit more comfortable with how difficult this is and how overwhelmed and unprepared you're always. I usually say I'm not comfortable, but I'm getting used to the discomfort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just less surprised Mm. that I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the places that I go when I know I can't do this are the places that teach me the power of God. So it doesn't take away when, when Paul says in our weakness, God is strong. He doesn't say we'll feel strong. Yeah. He says in our weakness, we will be strong and we don't feel that, but the weakness, the weakness drives me to the Lord and I lie on the floor and I just say, I've got nothing. God, I'm totally <laughs> empty. What do you, what do you see here that I don't see? And that very practice is an emptying practice, which then allows me to get out of the way. I think, you know, we say come Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's great theology because the the Bible tells us we have the Spirit. We've been given it already. We don't feel it because we clutter ourselves up with a bunch of other junk. Mm -hmm. And and I actually have a prayer. I can share the video that I created to do a guided prayer meditation on this image of visualizing yourself as a clay vessel that you've actually cluttered up with a bunch of useless concrete and and visualizing one by one, taking out the chunks of concrete that you've filled yourself with to just feel more full Mm. and finding at the bottom of this, you know, then feeling, breathing the emptiness and not feeling shame of the emptiness because it's an opportunity. And then noticing at the bottom of this empty vessel, this ordinary cracked, brittle clay vessel, 
at the bottom there's a little puddle of molten gold that's just been waiting wow. for more space to fill us up and then inviting it. Yes, fill, seal every crack and bring life to everything that you touch. Fill and overflow. And that's a prayer that has taught me to, to confront my own ordinariness as a clay vessel but also to see the way that God wants to partner with us in that place and show so the beauty of his power in mm. that place. Yeah, that, that, that emptiness turns out, I mean, you know, Meister Eckhart, I mean, he's not alone here. I mean, there's a whole Christian tradition of this that takes different shapes. I mean, you can see it in the Carmelite tradition one way and Eckhart in a different way, but, and, and then into Luther from Eckhart, but this sense of what we're calling emptiness is actually divine fullness. It just, it's mm. too much for us to, <clears throat> to take in. And so it strikes us as a nothing when in fact it's, it's more than everything, right? It's, right. it's an infinite goodness yeah. that is just felt by us because we're desensitized and have lost touch with reality. We're, we're, mm. we're experiencing it as, as nothing. I, I think, I want to have you pray for us in just a moment, but I'm, I'm struck too by the ways in which what you're saying about the stone tablets and the clay pots and the vellum is resonating again with that image of bone memory and that in our experience of God and our relation with God, the way that we pray, the way that we read scripture, the way that we love and are loved by brothers and sisters in the kind of throes of life, I think there's a kind of Christianity that's skin deep. And then there's a kind of flesh deep Christianity. <clears throat> and then there's a bone deep knowing mm. of God. Mm. And what's going to matter, what's going to last is that bone deep knowing mm. of God mm-hmm. that is going to take the breaking of the stone tablets. You know, that there's the Christianity that my faith that I can, that is written on stone in the sense that it's, it's public. It, it puts me in control, or at least it seems to put me in control. Mm. And everything I hear from you is a kind of reminder that you know, knowing God is a is coming at the end of control, outside of me being in control, mm. falling over the waterfall to come back to your to your image down into the river. Yeah. So, I, yeah, Lord, let us let that happen and be at and be at peace with it. I mean, even if we're not comfortable, we can. We can mm-hmm. have a kind of peace with this is apparently the life God wants with us and for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And there's the way it's like, right. It's like riding a roller coaster, which I don't love actually, but it's a good metaphor <laughs> that like, if you're on the roller coaster anyway, you can grit your teeth or you can scream your heart out and, and say this, this, you know, um, there's a choice and there's something actually kind of beautiful and exciting about like, yeah. I'm out of control on this roller coaster and I'm going to, I'm going to just suck all the juice out of it. You know, I'm going to appreciate whatever it is. So there is a kind of anxiety and excitement can feel very similar sometimes. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm finding the excitement come more. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded this will be my last word and I'd love for you to pray for us, but I'm reminded of the image you shared of yourself years ago on that Sunday morning, preaching your hands empty about the fish and the loaves. And, you know, however many years it's been since then, eight or 10 or whatever it's been, God has just been speaking with you and for you and through you and in you. And that, I mean, it should be an encouragement to all of us that that's, that's the posture we need to strike. We're the boy with the lunch Mm -hmm. and Jesus is, always there to multiply that all, all we have yeah. to do is share it yeah yeah Thank that's right that. it's it's our job not to be ashamed of how small the lunch is and to share it and and actually i've been using that metaphor in my ministry recently and and i felt like god has been reminding me well you know the fish and the loaves are also me too like i made the fish <laughs> i made the wheat like it's all still me <laughs> mm, whatever you give is a gift i gave yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. What it, this, and this is what the Eucharist teaches us, right? That whatever we try to mm. give to God is in fact something already given to us and then given yeah. back to us as more. Yeah. Uh, Lovely. Dr. Smith, Pastor Mandy, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you say, um, the bone memory of Christian 
faith, I'm reminded of a prayer I was just reading in um, the book Try Softer. And it's it's a breathing prayer. So there's not many words to it. It's just Yahweh. Um, so maybe I'll just say those words three times, yeah. that word three times. And on Yah, breathe in. And on Way, breathe out. Because this is in our bodies. His very name is our breath. So let's pray his name. So breathe in, Yah. Way. Yah. Way. Yah. Way. Amen. Amen.